How you guys doing this morning? <clears throat> good, good. Well, hey, let's jump right into it. So turn your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. It's, uh, <clears throat> I'm thankful this passage uh, fell on my week because it's one of my favorite passages in Ecclesiastes, but I'm just going to read the text so we kind of know what we're working with and so that if you didn't read it this week, well, you'll have read it, <laughs> all right? And, uh, and then we'll walk through some, some points together, but let's just start. I'm going to be reading out of the New International Version, so if you have that, great. If not, well, yours is close enough, all right? <clears throat> yeah, guard your steps. When you go to the house of God, go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you're on earth. So let your words be few. As a dream comes when there are many cares, so the speech of a fool when there are many words. I was talking to my wife real quick. I was talking to my wife uh, this week, and I was reading through the passage with her, and um, she was like, you probably ought to just like stop there. <laughs> the speech of a fool comes when there's many words, so just quit. Um, anyway, <clears throat> when you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools, so fulfill your vow. It's better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Don't let your mouth lead you into sin. And don't protest to the temple messenger saying, my vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, stand in awe of God. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, don't be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one and over them, over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. Whoever loves money never has enough money. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except to, uh, to feast his eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet whenever he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. I've seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when he has a son, there's nothing left for him. Naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hand. This too is a grievous evil. As a man comes, so he departs, and what does he gain since he toils for the wind? All his days he eats in darkness, with great frustration, affliction, and anger. Then I realized that it is good and proper for a man to eat and drink and to find satisfaction in his toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given him, for this is his lot. Moreover, when God gives a man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot and be happy in his work, this is a gift of God. He seldom reflects on the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with gladness of heart. I've seen another evil under the sun, and it weighs heavily on men. God gives a man wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing his heart desires, but God does not enable him to enjoy them. And a stranger enjoys them instead. This is meaningless. 
a grievous evil. A man may have a hundred children and live many years, yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive a proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. It comes without meaning, it departs in darkness, and in darkness its name is shrouded. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest than does that man. Even if he lives a thousand years twice over but fails to enjoy his prosperity, do not all go to the same place? All man's efforts are for his mouth, yet his appetite is never satisfied. What advantage has a wise man over a fool? What does a poor man gain by knowing how to conduct himself before others? Better what the eye sees than the roving appetite. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Whatever exists has already been named, and what a man is has been known. No man can contend with the one who is stronger than he. The more words, the less meaning. And how does that profit anyone? For who knows what's good for a man's life during the few and meaningless days he passes through like a shadow? Who can tell him what will happen under the sun after he is gone? Hey, be encouraged, <laughs> right? You read that, you're like, well, all right. Um, you know, I, as I was thinking about, so the author of Ecclesiastes is a guy named Kohelet, um, or the, the teacher. And, and I think what Kohelet is, uh, is, is saying in these two chapters, one pack, just some, uh, some major points that he's pointing out. But, but when I started thinking about, hey, how, what's a good metaphor, or, or not even necessarily a metaphor, but just what, what's a good paradigm to think about Ecclesiastes from? So how do we view this book? And, and I think that probably the most helpful thing that, um, that came to my mind was, was viewing Ecclesiastes um, in light of a historical continuum. So from creation to the new heavens and the new earth, right? Because um, for, for most of us, um, it, it's, it's very easy for us to view our circumstances, our life, our situation, our, you fill in the blank, it's your life. Whatever you're dealing with, it's very easy for us to, um, to basically um, see ourselves along, or, or basically to see ourselves as encompassing the entire continuum, as opposed to just being one little speck along thousands and thousands of years of history in which God has been moving to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. This reminded me of a quote that C.S. Lewis gave one time. He's doing a seminar on Christian apologetics. And he says this, uh, it was really fascinating. He said, I find that the uneducated Englishman is almost a total skeptic about history. I had expected that he would disbelieve the Gospels because they contain miracles, but really he disbelieves the Gospels because they deal with things that happened 2,000 years ago. He, he would have disbelieved equally in the Battle of Actium if he had heard of it. To those who have our kind of education, his state of mind is very difficult to realize. Um, to us, the present has always appeared as one section in a huge continuous process. In his mind, however, the present occupies almost the whole field of vision. Beyond it, isolated from it, and quite unimportant, is something called the old days a small cosmic jungle in which highwaymen, Queen Elizabeth, and knights in armor wander about. He's saying that 
A healthy view of life is one where you see yourself uh, along a, a vast line of what God has been doing, and, and along with that comes a settled humility. I mean, I know for me, it's really easy for me to be a navel gazer and to kind of be kind of uh, tunnel vision about things where, where I'm just like, I, you know, I... I kind of think that this, this world is just all about me and all about what's going on in my life. Have, have y'all seen this new thing I saw on the news the other day? That they've come out with like um, ways to enhance uh, taking selfies. Have y'all seen this? It's like this stick that you, hold, that you hold out and like can take pictures from the stick to like take more selfies of yourself. I mean, and, and I mean, we live in this culture. You can't not be affected by it. And this is the kind of thing that we encounter every day. I mean, whether it's spoken or unspoken, like we're just obsessed with ourselves. And, 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 and that, that ends up having a lot of really adverse um, consequences. One of them um, happens at the beginning of chapter five, right? Guard your steps when you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, the sacrifice of the fool was the guy who stepped into the house of God with an overt uh, obsession with himself. He did not guard his steps when he came before Almighty God. And, and I think that Kohelet is warning this guy, hey, um, the, your, the problem that you have is that you have narcissistic tunnel vision. Um, so, so that the, the, that all you see is the stuff that's right in front of you. You have no perspective to step back and see the whole continuum of like, man, really, like, even if I'm like Bill Gates or, or, you know, Steve Jobs or, or whoever, I don't care. You fill in the blank. Somebody that you aspire to not necessarily be, but at least have their money. Right. Um, so like I, I aspire to be these guys, but you, you can't step away from it and be like, actually, no, we're. We're really kind of small on this whole continuum of what God's been doing. And I think that when you you do have narcissistic tunnel vision, all you see is this. That's it. All right, so go back to the historical continuum line. All right, see how that's a long line? And then all you see when you tunnel vision is this. Right, you you can't, you, you haven't stepped away to be like, Okay, this, this isn't about me at all. And, and yet that's, that's the problem that drives this. It's, and and it, look, guys, even if it was about you, the problem is, is that your existence is meaningless if it's about you, right? So they did, they, this is crazy. The uh, University of Virginia partnered up with Harvard and they did a study last, last year Came, they published the results on July the 3rd, 2014. And it was, a, um, it was an anthropological study where they put people from uh, college age all the way up until 80 years old into a room by themselves for 15 minutes, right? And they just asked themselves, hey, just think, right? Well, I think the like, overwhelming majority of them came out of the room and said, that was an unpleasant experience, right? Just to be alone with yourself and your thoughts in a room for 15 minutes, it fascinated the people who did the study. So they were like, hey, we're going to like press this. 
So they put a, have y'all ever seen those, like, it looks like a, like a round ball or whatever, but it's, a, it's a aluminum or metal or whatever, but it has an electrical charge. And if you get too close to it or you touch it, it, it gives you a little shock, right? Like, oh, gum, man, <laughs> you know? And so they put one of these things in the room with those people and said, you know, hey, just be alone with your thoughts for 15 minutes, right? How many of you guys would guess that everybody just shocked the heck out of themselves the whole time? Raise your hand if you think that, all right? Everybody raise your hand because that's what happened, right? I mean, literally, people were like, I would, ra- I would rather shock myself than be alone with my thoughts. Because you have tunnel vision. Because it's all about you. And when you turn into yourself, uh, like C.S. Lewis said, when, when, when a man is wholly consumed with himself, when all he can see is himself, he turns into himself, and what he finds there is hell. So even if life is all about you, what you have is hell. So Kohelet is saying, be careful. Step back. Take a step back and see. See where you are. And, and, and ultimately see who is driving this whole process. So if you do have narcissistic tunnel vision, what's the result? Well, let's look through the past two chapters we just read. Ecclesiastes 5.10 and 6.10. Whoever, now check this out, not ever who, ha, not ever who has money, what does it say? Whoever what? Loves money, never has enough money. Whoever loves his wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. So if you have narcissistic tunnel vision and your life literally, even if you're saying, no, it's not about my money, but you function that way, then it is about your money. It's about your love of your money. If that's the way that you're functioning, if, you're, if your wealth, if your material gain, if your possessions, if you're, I gotta do the next thing, is actually driving your decision process, then functionally, you're, you're, you have narcissistic tunnel vision. Okay? Um, and, and so... Um, let, let's just self-examine this morning. So it's never enough. I mean, you get the next deal, you get the next house, you get the next ranch house, you get the next lake house, you get whatever. It's not enough. 610. Um, <clears throat> yeah, chapter 6, verse 10. Um, I'm sorry, I should, should say 9. Um, better what the eyes see than the roving appetite. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. So it's just it's not, you're, you're never uh, satisfied. Chapter five, verse 11. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? So um, th- there's this consumerism that is, the more you consume, the, the more your appetite is gonna grow, right? I, I, um, I heard a guy say this one time, um, a mentor of mine down at Dallas Seminary, and uh, he was like, hey, uh, he, he was likening, likening it to, to uh, lust. And he said, um, hey, a full harem of women does not satisfy your libido, it excites it. Right? So it's, it's just never enough. See Solomon, right? You can apply this to material wealth as well. It, you know, the more you gain does not satisfy your desire for material wealth, it excites it. So it becomes, it literally, like he said, like well it said, it literally becomes a vicious cycle of never being enough. And, and it's empty, it really is empty. 5.12, worry. The sleep of the laborer is sweet. Whoever 
um, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man does not permit him to sleep. You can't even sleep. There's darkness, frustration, affliction, anger. See verse 17 of chapter 5. There's emptiness. Chapter 6, verse 2, God gives a man wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing his heart desires, but God does not enable him to enjoy them, and a stranger enjoys them instead. This is meaningless. So what's the solution? So far, this has been pretty depressing, right? So what's the solution? How, how do we go from a narcissistic tunnel vision where it is about acquiring things, it is about doing more for ourselves, it's about really me, well, I think, I think well, it also gives us some, some good points. Chapter 5, verse 7, right? Um, he says, therefore, stand in awe of God. All right? So some of you guys may, may not go to church very often, and some of you guys may be jaded by the church, frankly. Um, I would say, get in line, all right? But the other thing I would tell you is, that so you, you come to a church and you expect to hear things like, hey, you should fear God, right? But I want to go a little bit deeper, deeper beyond just a surface like, hey, you guys should fear God. Because I don't, I mean, a lot of, a lot of times you'll hear guys preach on this passage and they say, they, they basically just tell people how not to love money. I don't want to, I don't, I, I would rather not state things in a negative sense. Hey, don't love money, all right? I would rather state things in a positive sense. Love God, love Christ. If you love Christ, you will not love money. Right? You, you, you will become an effective steward of what is God's. Right? So I don't just want to say like a, a fear God um, and just leave it there. I want to dig into that. So what does it mean to fear God? Well, I think part of it is drawing near to him on a consistent basis. Henry Nouwen said this. He said, without solitude, it is virtually impossible to live a spiritual life. So let's, let's, con- let's contrast the discipline of solitude with the University of Virginia Harvard study, right? These guys and gals literally could not be in a room for more than, five, more than 15 minutes without inflicting pain on themselves just to distract their minds. What does that tell you about our society? We're totally jacked up, right? And, and, if we're, and frankly, guys, if we're honest, right, do some self-reflection, and ask yourself, man, when's the last time I was alone with my thoughts for more than 15 minutes? When was the last time I spent time alone listening to God? So dr- drawing near is literally like carving time out in your schedule to go be with the Lord, to, to, go, to go recognize that meaning and purpose is found in Him and not in the pursuits of, of, of this world. So the second thing, listen. Look, guys, we don't need more busy people. Do you know that? The church does not need a bunch of guys to come sit in here and get a to-do list and go be busy out throughout the week. We don't need that. What we do need is we need deep people. People who know how to drink from the presence of God like he's a deep well. That's who we need. I'm going to quote Eugene Peterson at length because when I read this, I 
got really fired up. I'm going to try to contain myself this morning. (laughs) But I think this is applicable to all of our lives. He says this, I want to simplify your life. When others are telling you to read more, I want to tell you to read less. When others are telling you to do more, I want to tell you to do less. The world does not need more of you. It needs more of God. Your friends don't need more of you. They need more of God. And you don't need more of you. You need more of God. The Christian life consists in what God does for us, not what we do for God. God's so true. The Christian life consists in what God says to us, not what we say about God. That's so true. We also, of course, do things and say things, but if we don't return to square one, each time we act, each time we speak, beginning from God and his word, we will soon be found to be practicing a spirituality that has little or nothing to do with God. And so it's necessary, if we're going to truly live a Christian life and not just use the word Christian to disguise our narcissistic and Promethean attempts at a spirituality without worshiping God and without being addressed by God, it's necessary to return to square one and adore God and listen to God. Given our sin-damaged memories that render us vulnerable to every latest edition of journalistic spirituality, Daily reorientation in the truth revealed in Jesus and attested in the scripture is required. And given our ancient predisposition to reduce every scrap of divine revelation that we come across into a piece of moral or spiritual technology that we can use to get on in the world and eventually to get on without God, a daily return to a condition of not knowing and non-achievement is required. We have proven time and time again that we are not to be trusted in these matters. We need to return to square one for a fresh start as often as every morning, noon, and night. Yes. Right? There's something about um, to-do lists, accomplishing things for God that's exhausting if that's all you're trying to do. Turn with me real quick to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Love this passage. I think probably all of us should memorize it. He says this. Well, I'll just read one and two, right? Context, right? Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let's throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let's run with perseverance the race that's marked out for us. You're like, okay, great, sweet. Yeah, let's do that for sure. But then I think he gives you the means by which you are to do that. And he says this, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And he goes on and and, and talks about what Christ has done for you. Look, guys, the Christian life is not about what you're doing for God. The Christian life is about you fixing Christ, setting him up in front of you, beholding his beauty, and being captivated by the love of God. We can be busy, we can do things for God, when really all all, all it, it ends up being, if you're not fixing Christ up in front of you, it becomes narcissistic tunnel vision to where now um, you're doing things for God has really turned into something about you. And God's not even in it. So from a positive sense, fix Christ up in front of you. Fear him. 
acknowledge his supremacy, be captivated by the beauty of Christ. Be captivated by his love for you, that you're a son. Fix your eyes on Christ. Do things in a, do things in a, in a, in a positive sense. Hey, I'm just trying not to mess up. No, pursue Christ. Know him. Love him. Listen to him. Draw near to him. Guys, I'll just tell you, if you think that you're going through your life without any kind of um, solitude, slowing, listening, deepening, then I think you, th- you think you might be living a spiritual life, but I, don't th- I think you're just scratching the surface. There's, there's, there's so much more there. There is the capacity to transform your life, but it only comes at the foot of the cross. We got to go there. We got to go there all the time. Eat, drink, be satisfied with your work. I want to make this point. Look, um, it's, it's, look your, work, your work is extremely important. God has put you on the earth for you to work, for you to go to your job today and to do your job in the name of Christ, to honor him with what you do, to work with God, for God, unto God. Right? So, so your work is not a bad thing. right? In fact, I would say when, when you're including God in it, it's a sacred thing. Right? So, so don't think like, well, I've got to go be this hyper-spiritual guy that goes and sits on a mountain and prays 36 hours a day. You know? No. I'm saying this, this can be a very real reality as you're including God, you're working with him, you're working for him, you're working unto him, you're, you're setting him up in front of you and then your work is becoming, it is sacred because um, in that scale of continuum from creation to the new earth, God is using your work to bring about his kingdom. So do your job, do it well. Dr- eat, drink, be satisfied with your work. What was meaningless without God? When he invades it, it instantly is infused with meaning and it becomes sacred. A final thought, and then we're done, all right? Pretty much right on time, money. Chapter 6 of Ecclesiastes, the very last verse. You have to understand, when, I think when Kohelet wrote this, um, I don't, I don't see in Ecclesiastes any kind of like, uh, um, I don't see any kind of uh, developed doctrine of, of uh, the afterlife, okay? And for, for him, for Kohelet, that the, the line starts at creation, but it ends with his grave, right? So can we go back to the historical continuum real quick? Um, so his starts with creation, it ends with his grave. So in his mind, the new heaven, new earth, that's not even something he's thinking about. Right? So I'm, I'm sitting here looking at him, I'm like, well, dude, no wonder. It is meaningless. Right? But I think there's more. So Ecclesiastes 6, verse 12. Just that last sentence. Who can tell someone what will happen af- under the sun after he's gone? Well, I can. Right? And, and not just me, I'm, I'm going to read Paul, so I guess Paul can. And ultimately, um, Jesus can. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, 
the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as, in, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn. Christ, the first fruit, and then, when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come, when Christ hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until Christ has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Guys, um, and, and where's, where's Bobby Karate? Uh, there he is. We were talking earlier, well, not earlier, a couple weeks ago, when the ice stuff hit and we got, you know, we had to cancel Summit that one week. <coughs> and we, we've been talking about the sovereignty of God a lot as well, but um, I think maybe it's God's sovereignty that this passage shows up on the Passion Week, right? Um, because this week we celebrate something. We don't celebrate just like a religious holiday where we come and, okay, yeah, sing songs and all this kind of stuff. We are celebrating an actual historical event where a physical man died on a physical tree and then three days later, physically, literally, bodily, the man who was dead is no longer dead. He is alive. This is the power of the gospel. So that, so that uh, a meaningless life is now infused with meaning because of the resurrection of the dead. Because your life is not meaningless. God will raise you from the dead. Christ is the first fruits of all of us who will ultimately be raised from the dead. And life is full of meaning because of this. This is why we hope. This is why we sing. This is why we draw near to God and place our hope and trust in him because we know along that continuum one day he will raise us from the dead and you'll live forever. When you're joined, when you, when you are united back to Christ, you cannot die. Jesus said, he who believes in me, even if he dies, he will live. I am the resurrection and the life. Amen. <clears throat> Well, Lord, we praise your name. You are worthy of our praise. You have defeated death, and you have defeated the enemy, and you are supreme and sovereign in our lives. I pray that when we get distracted by all the things going on around us, I pray that you would take us out of ourselves, pull us away from our tunnel vision, and help us to see the glory and the beauty of what you've always been doing. And thank you for the opportunity that we get to participate with you as your sons. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.